0: To the new testament book of hebrews we're in chapter 13 our text today hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6. The title of the message is cultivating a biblical attitude towards money now the book of hebrews is somewhat enigmatic as we think about the canon of scripture for one we don't know who wrote it and opinions vary widely about that subject we're not even sure exactly to whom it was addressed But by context, we know they certainly must have been Christians that had been converted out of Judaism. Because of persecution and internal pressure, many of them were under great temptation to go back to their old way of life, to go back to the old covenant. The author of Hebrews is encouraging them to persevere and continue in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And towards the end of the letter, in what we now know as chapter 13, the topic turns to very practical matters of Christian life and experience. Things like hospitality and marriage and money. And we'll save the subjects of hospitality and marriage for another day, but we are in a third message of our four part series entitled A Thousand Hills, developing a biblical worldview about money and material possessions. So far we've established, I hope, in the first two messages, some overarching truths. One, God owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills are his, Psalm 50 says. That is, he owns everything. And if he owns everything, he's not dependent upon us. When we give to him, we're only giving that which already belongs to him. And secondly, if he owns everything, that means the blessings we have in our hands are temporary. And that means we're stewards and managers of those blessings. And stewards and managers are held into accountability. And one day we'll give, we'll give an account of how we handle those resources. This morning we want to examine what the Bible has to say about the appropriate attitude a Christian should have towards money. Now there are many passages in the Bible that I could have chosen that deal with that subject, but I think these verses, Hebrews 13, five and six, summarize the great theme of all the scripture in this area. So let's read those two verses now. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, and I will never forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. I want to attempt this morning to make four points from two verses. Uh, They all have to do with how we can develop this attitude that God is pleased with towards money and possessions. Number one, how the character is developed. Secondly, how covetousness is defeated. Thirdly, how we can demonstrate contentment. And finally, how we can declare confidence in the Lord. So let's begin in verse five, character developed. He says, make sure of something. To make sure is to tie something up fast and tight and securely. A few years ago, I got a call in the middle of the day from my wife on my cell phone. I recognized her number, I answered. I could tell by her voice that something can happen. And I said, What's going on? She said, We had an accident in the van. And I knew she had all of our children in the car with her. And so you think the worst. And I asked where she was. And I met her there. And it was at the intersection of 1709 and 377, just west of there at the railroad tracks. And I asked her what happened. I saw that on the side of our van, I thought, How in the world did someone hit the side of the van from this angle? And she explained, She was headed east towards Keller and a landscaping crew in a pickup pulling a trailer was heading west towards Fort Worth, and they met on the railroad tracks, and the uneven surface of the railroad tracks had dislodged the trailer from the truck, and it took a 90-degree angle right into the side of the van, and it scared her more than it caused damage, and no one was injured, thankfully. But I think about that event sometimes as it relates to this phrase in the Greek, make sure. Make sure. Someone that morning whose job it was to make sure the trailer to the truck failed. And because it did, it was an accident. And what the scripture is saying here, I believe, if you don't make sure that your character is free from the love of money, you are in danger of wrecking your life. And so this message is not important because I'm saying it because the word of God says this is essential. It's important that your character is free from the love of money as a Christian. Now your character is your moral disposition. That is your general habits of life. That's not to say that you may have a greedy moment every now and then, but the general trajectory of your life is to show that you don't love money. Uh, Incidentally, that's one of the requisites we have here for anyone we hire on our ministerial staff. We're celebrating the fact that our first ever associate pastor administration, Scott Knott, will soon be here to help out in the administration department. But when we started that search two years ago, I do what I always do in these cases with the committees. I took a marker and got on the whiteboard, and I wrote an X, Y axis, and on one side was character, and on the other side was skill. And I said, obviously, with a church our size, we need somebody who's skilled in supervising people and handling money. But on the other hand, more important than his skill, because most adults can learn a skill, given enough time, is his character. Because character is formed early on in life, and it's very difficult to change. And so if we can find someone with very high character, and someone with skill, we'll be in good shape. And so it's an age-old argument. Are leaders born or developed? Well, character is clearly developed. That is a process. It takes intentionality and a plan. This is why we believe at First Baptist Keller that Christian homes are so important and why we constantly are cheering you on as pastors, as moms and dads, encouraging you to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord because that character is being formed at a very early age. As Brian Cole writes, character has to be cultivated like a garden Good gardeners know his job is not finished once the seed is in the ground. He has to water and fertilize and, yes, even weed the garden if he hopes to produce fruit and much fruit. And the fruit that God wants to produce in the lives of his children as it relates to money and possession can be summed up in one word, and that word is contentment, plain and simple. The word contentment means to be satisfied or pleased. And in the Christian context, it means finding one's Satisfaction and pleasure in life in a close, intimate walk with Jesus rather than in the blessings that Jesus may give you. Now, on the surface, that seems very simple, but having been a pastor a long time, I have found that even among Christians, contentment is one of the rarest of human conditions, and among unbelievers, it's almost non existent at all. I have many books on my list that I plan to read whenever I have more time. And that list is ever-growing. But one of them was written by a long-dead English Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs wrote a book with a title that has always intrigued me. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I think that sums up the nature of contentment. We all know it's valuable. We admire it from afar. We all would love to have it. But very few people ever grasp it. Well, I believe Christian contentment not only can be achieved, but will be achieved as we submit to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I don't believe the Lord would give us a commandment in the Bible unless he thought we could keep it, or he would give us the power to keep it. So here is what I know. I know a very few people in life, and probably you could name a handful yourself, who you would describe as truly content with what they have. And I know this, those people didn't get that place accidentally. They had to cultivate contentment. And as we're cultivating contentment, we have to remove some things from our lives and our attitudes that are contrary to the development of contentment. If contentment is the goal, we have to remove those things that interfere from that goal. Think of them as sins in your contentment garden. Weeds that you have to get ahead of lest they smother your contentment before it can bear fruit. And public enemy number one, as it relates to Christian contentment, is the sin of covetousness. And that's our second point from verse 5, covetousness defeated. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Simply put, covetousness is the sin of loving money and things. It's the state of being in which you're always wanting more or different or better. And the advertising industry in this country figured this out a long time ago. They try to keep us discontented with our car, with our house, with our insurance, with our cereal. (laughs) And so they come up with these catchy little phrases like, uh, you only go around once, you deserve the best. And the one I remember from my childhood of all things advertising beer, Go for the gusto, you remember that? Now at seven years old, I had no idea what gusto was. And I think I'd be hard pressed to define it today, but I know those people on that commercial were going for it with a great earnest. And they were young and healthy and good looking and they were having fun all the while holding that product in their hands. So it must be a connection there. And by the way, do you think it's an accident that alcohol companies appeal to youth? They want you for the rest of your life to be dependent upon it. But the idea behind most advertising that if you don't purchase our product or our service, you're the one missing out. You're missing out on the one thing that will give you satisfaction. And so many people you and I know, perhaps some in this room, are chasing those things because they hope against hope that when they catch it, it will bring them that elusive sense of satisfaction and even contentment that's missing from their lives. And here's the tragedy. Even if you had all the money in the world and you could buy and sample every product on planet Earth, it will never buy contentment. And we could give you example after example of this. Did you know that the two wealthiest men in the world, according to Forbes magazine, both recently lost their closest human relationship in the world? both of them, in the last year or two, have announced their divorces from their wives of many years. And as tragic and painful as it is to lose a marriage partner, there is a much greater loss, according to Jesus. Matthew 16, 26, he says, what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for his soul? And so maybe by now you have a question in your mind. Pastor, are you saying that Money and things are sinful. Is it wrong to have a nice house or drive a nice car? Well, no, those things are not sinful in themselves. There are many examples of godly men and women in the Bible who the Lord in his sovereignty blessed with great wealth. We know practically speaking that money is morally neutral. It can be used for great good or great harm. Even your house can be dedicated and used for the glory of God. So it's not wrong to have things, but remember what Spurgeon said that many Christians dream that God is satisfied with hooves and horns when he really wants hearts and souls. And I said the modern equivalent of that is many Christians believe that God is satisfied, and they are satisfied, with cash and stock certificates. But God has not changed. He still wants our hearts and our souls. And so the question is not, what is your net worth? The question is, what do you love? What do you love? It's not money that is sinful. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible has to do with money. Ever heard someone say, money is the root of all evil? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. So what is evil is trusting in money, believing in money, having your security tied up in your assets, seeking security and satisfaction, in other words, in the things of this world. And the reason that the love of money is a sin, and I would say a damning sin, is found in the words of Jesus when he said this: "No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth." And so if your faith and trust is in money or the things that it can buy, you're not trusting God. And if your faith and trust is in Christ alone, you can't trust money. They're mutually exclusive in in that regard. And so as it relates to that garden of contentment that we have to cultivate, it is a daily fight. Someone asked me what I'm growing in my garden this spring, and I said mushrooms right now. (laughs) But we do have a garden, and uh, we enjoy it, but you have to fight the weeds. You have to water it. You have to fertilize it if you ever hoped for it to bear any fruit. That leads to our third point. Contentment demonstrated. Verse 5 again. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself will say, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Being content with what you have. Now that's very complicated grammatical phrase but it simply means in the Greek being a constant state of it's not a one-off thing you are in a constant state of contentment when you're walking closely with the Lord what does that mean we should never try to improve our career status never seek to make a higher income never seek to do better by our family of course not certainly that's not what it means Never have any ambition in business? Certainly not. In fact, I think the right sort of ambition is a God-given thing. We go all the way to the the book of Genesis. Twice did God say to humanity, go forth and what? Multiply. That's not just have children. That's mean, take the resources I've provided and do good with them. It's okay to have ambition as long as you don't love the things of the world. In other words, love the Savior and use the things the Savior supplies. So many people just get it opposite, don't they? They want to use God so that they can get the things that they think is going to bring them satisfaction. We are coming up very closely to the month of June. June is wedding season in Texas and throughout the country. And so uh, in May, I am in the middle of premarital counseling sessions And one of the sessions, we have five with each couple, I ask a very difficult question. I ask the couple to turn towards one another, look at your fiance, think about their moral character, their finances, their personality, and even their physical appearance. Then I ask this question, if you knew today that those things, their character, their finances, their personality, and even their looks, will never improve over the course of your marriage, would you still be willing to marry this person? And what I mean in that question is that are you making this commitment because you want to spend a lifetime with this person or with the person you plan for them to be in the future? Those are two very different things. By the way, that's why we ask questions in the wedding ceremony as are you willing to stick by one another in good times and bad, sickness and health, rich or poor, because we know there is no guarantee. It's perfectly possible that when you stand in your 20s before your friends and family and God and make those covenant promises that your life will all be downhill from there. (laughs) That'll be the high point. Are you still willing to make this commitment to one another? So in other words, if your commitment in marriage is based on a best case imaginary scenario in the future, I instruct them, please don't get married because no one has a best-case scenario. Likewise, Christian brother and sister, if your devotion to God hinges on a constant up and to the right of your net worth statement, please, please disabuse yourself of the notion that you will ever cultivate contentment. You didn't get that. Let me say it again. If your devotion to God hinges on a constant up and right of your net worth statement, disabuse yourself of the notion that you will ever cultivate contentment. You will not. You see, I say again, Christian contentment is not a function of net worth. Christian contentment is a function of who you love, where your affections lie. Paul said it this way, looking to heaven where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. If your home is in heaven, truly, that's where your heart is, and Jesus says, that's where your treasure is. And I know wealthy people who are content in Christ, and I know poor people who are content in Christ. I know wealthy people who will never be content with what they have, and I know poor people in the same category. Question is not about the condition of your bank statement. It's about the condition of the heart. Who do you love? We should ask ourselves diagnostic questions often. Who do you love? Where's your home? Where do your affections lie? Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. Scripture says not on earth because the treasure of this earth all has one thing in common, whether it's in stocks or bonds or land, They all fall in the same category. They will one day go away. Peter says that it's all going to be burned up with fervent heat. It's all subject to inflation eating it up. It's subject to thieves breaking in and stealing it. It's subject to moths and rust corrupting and destroying it. So don't put your trust in the things of this earth. Make sure your affections are in heaven where Jesus is. And here's a good litmus test. I thought all week, is there one diagnostic question I can ask myself every day to make sure I'm getting this right. And I think this is it. If I lost everything I've accumulated up until this point, would it devastate me? Would it crush me emotionally and spiritually? Or could I honestly say, though it would be painful, that with this I'm not destroyed because I see in it the providence of a sovereign God. If I lost everything I've accumulated up until this age of 49, would I see that as a grace of the Lord because He knows me better than I know myself, and He knew He needed to take that away to make me the person He wants me to be? Or would I be devastated and destroyed? It's a hard question, isn't it? The one we need to ask regularly. We see now in verse 5 and 6, though, a confidence declared. Again, verse 5b, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. That's a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has come to the end of his life. God's told him, you won't go to the promised land. I'm raising up Joshua. Moses graciously prepared everything he could do to get Joshua ready, he brings the people together. He presents Joshua to them, and he promised them, I will never desert you. That's a military term. I'm not going to put you on the front lines and then back away. I won't leave any man behind. I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. That's what God says to his people. Now, verse 6 says, so we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? There's a back and forth going on here. God says something, and then we say something in response. God says, I will never leave you or desert you or abandon you. And because God has never lied and we trust in God, if we believe God, we say in response, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? That's from the Psalms. The 23rd Psalm, written by David, says something very similar. He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because I have a good balance in my 401k, because my house is paid off, for thou art with me. I think that is the most important thing any Christian could know with certainty. No matter if I lose everything, that's okay as long as I know the Lord has not abandoned me. And yet, we manifest through our behavior towards money and possessions that we really don't trust the Lord. We want to hedge our bets. I am very interested in the psychology of hoarders, people that never throw anything away. It's a documentary I saw years ago about it. It's turned into a television program, I understand by that name. I didn't know the term hoarding growing up, but I knew some. Out in the country, there were people who had old junk cars throughout their property farm implements, and washing machines. And I even then couldn't understand why would anybody want to treat their property this way? But years later, having talked to some of these people now, I think I kind of understand at least some of them. A lot of these people have a distrust of banks that goes back to the Great Depression era. And they don't understand the stock market, but they know cars. And they know cars have tangible value. And so if I get into a tight and I need to buy groceries and I don't have anything as far as cash, I can sell one of these cars and I can buy groceries. That's how they think, something tangible that they can hold on to and see and touch. I saw this 20 years ago when I worked for Buckner Orphanage in Eastern Europe. Most of the orphans we ministered to were Russian, but for several weeks we were in Romania. If you know anything about Romanian orphanages and their history, there's a terrible history of abuse and deprivation. And, and many of these kids barely had enough to eat. And so we would come into the city orphanages and with buses and take them out to the countryside where we had secured and rented very beautiful dormitories and kitchens and cafeterias in a camp. And for two weeks, they ate buffet-style three meals a day. All they could eat. And we told them when they got off the bus, now, no limit, go back as many times as you want. They were overwhelmed by this. I remember after the first day, I was uh, putting some of the kids down for bed that night, and I I could hear rustling of paper, plastic. You know that sound. And I patted their pockets, and I found they were full of sandwiches. You know the little cellophane wrapper that processed cheese comes in? And so every meal we had this cheese out and they would take it and eat the cheese and they would take the wrapper and they would take the homemade bread because we had little Romanian grandmothers that cooked homemade bread for every meal. And whatever meat we had, they would stuff it between this homemade bread and they would wrap it in the cellophane wrapper. And every child had every pocket they had stuffed with sandwiches. Do you know why? Because they had experienced deprivation. They knew what it was like to be without. And they knew, I've got food today, but there's no promise they'll be there tomorrow because they didn't trust us yet. Now, we told them there was going to be that food there every day, three days a week for two weeks. About the sixth or seventh day, we noticed fewer and fewer of these cellophane wrappers disappearing. By the end of two weeks, they had finally learned to trust us that there would be food tomorrow. Now, Christian friend, you know where I'm going with this. If you are hoarding money and things, what are you saying to the Lord? I don't trust you for tomorrow. I know I've got some today, so I'm gonna stuff it in because I fear you won't keep your promise of never leaving me or forsaking me. And if you are a hoarder of washing machines and junk cars, the city of Keller is gonna issue a citation to you. <laughs> your neighbor's gonna write angry letters And if you hoard food, it's going to be a smell come from your house originally, and you'll get another citation. But there is one kind of hoarder that is celebrated as almost heroic in our culture. It's the person that hoards money. Now, there's a difference between hoarding and saving. We're going to talk about next week. Is it okay to save some money? And I'll give it away. The Bible says, yes, consider the ant. Put away some for tomorrow. But there's a difference between hoarding and saving. Here's the difference. A saver saves because he knows the nature of things is to change and he wants to provide for those he loves, including those who are less fortunate. A hoarder is someone who saves and never gives any away for fear that they might need it in the future. Hoarding, according to Scripture, is a sin because it expresses distrust of a sovereign and a holy God. And Christian, there's no place for hoarding in your Christian experience. If you believe the Bible, and the Bible says this, My God shall supply all your what? Needs. Adrian Rogers, every time he read that verse, I can hear his voice. He said, uh, My God shall supply all your needs, not all your greeds. You see the difference. God has a promise to give you luxury, but he has promised to meet the basic needs of your life. Now, what is our response to his promises to be? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. It puts away fear and leads, of course, to contentment and satisfaction. What can man do to me? Man can take away my property. He can, can't he? But I'll still be content so long as my contentment rests in my relationship with him and not the things he provides. And I would say it this way in closing. Christian confidence and Christian contentment are very closely related. Here's what I mean. The more confident you are in God and in his nature and in his trustworthiness and in his omnipotence, which means his ability to provide, the less confidence you are in money and possessions. Would you agree with that? Remember, said Jesus said you can't serve God and money. They're mutually exclusive. So if you fill up your life with confidence in God and who he is and his nature, the less you, confident you are in money and possessions, and the less confident you are in money and possessions, the more confident you are in Jesus. Of course, the solution is this. If your confidence is truly in Jesus and you're right standing with Him through His death, burial, and resurrection, you can have contentment regardless of the circumstances. So your contentment then won't be a function of best case scenario. won't be a function of a net worth that's going up and to the right. won't be a function of a good day in the stock market. It won't be a function in the fact that you have the latest and greatest toy to make your neighbor jealous. Your contentment is found in the fact that you are in Christ. You find your identity in Him, not in the things that He can provide. And when your contentment is in Christ, that means your affections are in heaven. And if your affections are in heaven, they can't be here on earth, where they're all going to burn up with fervent heat. And so, dear one, my prayer for myself, and it's the same prayer for all of you as members of this church, is that we would be intentional about cultivating the garden of Christian contentment. That we fertilize it and we water it through the daily intake of God's word and that we constantly on the lookout for those weeds of covetousness and discontentment and that we will pull them unsparingly so that we can live a life marked by contentment in christ let's pray that the lord would help us do that heavenly father lord we thank you for your word it's a hard word when we talk about our money and possession it gets very personal very quickly it can be uncomfortable father it's what we need but such a big part of our life especially in our culture centers around possessions, and specifically money. You know we need money to buy food and to take care of our family and to support the ministries of the church, and you've promised to provide all of our needs. Father, help us to make sure that we're not being greedy. Help us to make sure that we hold the things of this earth very loosely in our hands, that if you call upon us to give it away or you take it away through some act of nature, that we'd not be devastated. In fact, we'd see in it your providence. It's what we needed at the time. Though it would hurt and it would sting, we'd not be crushed because our hope and our trust is not in the things you provide, but in the God who provides. Father, continue to grow us and sanctify us as individual Christians and as a church family. Knowing, Father, that we live in such an affluent area that this is a daily battle. We're bombarded and our kids are bombarded daily with advertisements that tell them that this product will bring content. Lord, help us to ignore that. Help us to be intentional about teaching our children to not to believe those lies, but to believe your promises that you'll never leave us or forsake us. And the more closely we're walking with you, the less closely, are the affections of this world and the things it provides. Make us more like Jesus, Lord. Trust you totally. We pray it in Jesus' name for his sake, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.